HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour, coming at you live from Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are in the Le Creuset podcast studio. You might be able to hear some of the uh, bones of our studio creaking a little bit, but we are having a blast in here. Um, don't mind the noises. <laughs> that, that magical voice is Matthew Rayford. Oh, goodness. <laughs> he is lounging on the couch. Lounging real cozy right now. Cozy. Having a good time. Yes. We also have Javon Sage mm-hmm. on the couch mm-hmm. looking longingly at Matthew. Thank you. Because <laughs> I'm a dreamboat. <laughs> oh, We're so excited to have you guys here. Um, I don't know if I introduced myself. I'm Kat Johnson. I'm here with Eli Sussman, host hey. of The Line. Happy we're really to be here. Ex- yeah, we're super excited to talk to Matthew and Jovan. I'm going to let Eli jump on in. Eli's been reading your guys' bio, and he's very interested. Uh-oh. Oh, my goodness. I, I want to hear about the farm, first and foremost. I want to hear a little bit about how long it's been around and okay. and what happens there, all the magic. It seems like a dream situation. It is. It Ooh, is. Um, what very dreamy. There? What happens there stays there. Sometimes. No. Um, so it's Gilyard Farms. Uh, land's been in my family since 1874. Uh, originally purchased by my great-great-great-grandfather, Jupiter Gilliard, who actually was born in South Carolina as a slave. Um, somehow made his way down to the Brunswick area um, and ended up with 476 acres of land um, that he purchased for less than $9 in taxes. Um, so, yeah, I'm the sixth generation to be on it farming. My children are the seventh to have planted, harvested, and eaten from a crop off of that land. Um, my youngest son was actually just with us during his winter break, um, collecting eggs and all that kind of good stuff. And yeah, um, now we're doing some really magical stuff on the farm. Um, I'll let Javon talk about some of the herbal stuff that we're doing, but one of the highlights that I'm having right now is uh, Simply Man Distillery in Georgia is one of the first Georgia-grown vodkas. And um, we are now getting ready to help him with his gin because we are going to grow all the botanicals or as much of the botanicals we can possibly grow. Mm -hmm. um, We're going to uh, grow at our farm. So like being part of that uh, piece of the puzzle where, you know, we're not talking about farm to table anymore. We're really talking about seed to table or seed to drink. Like 
what it takes to actually get from one point to the other isn't just about the farm, you know, because uh, every chef in here, regardless of where they go, they, they get their food from a farm, whether it comes off a truck or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it's amazing, you know, for me as the, the resident herbalist and food alchemist is to, you know, work with what the earth provides to pull together some amazing you know, drinks, whether it's cocktails or doing the specialty gin and Shrubs. really tapping into what we can grow as farmers and what we can pull together as as cooks and as food alchemists. And so I'm excited for the opportunities that the farm provides um, for us to connect with some of those um, those natural bounties. So for us, you know, part of the farm there's this we have this patch on our farm that has deer berries which are the some of the original cultivars for blueberries and so they're just little really tiny kind of tart um blueberries um that you know matthew's nana um used to turn into jam with her father and so before she passed at 96, she was able to see these berries come back to the land. And so it's amazing to, to be out there and to watch her joy um, at seeing these varieties come back. And it's actually one of the things that I'm including in the botanical mix for the gin are these deer berries. And so it's amazing to be able to have that full circle experience with the land. What yeah. grows really well on the farm and are there things that just in that area of the United States that don't work really well or have you had have you had great success on the farm with with your crops well I'll I'll start off by saying we're on a silty sandy loam mm -hmm. um, we're on the Piedmont uh, with those shells mm -hmm. you know kind of like rubbed up against each other so imagine if you mix dirt with sand yes you've got our earth yes there you go that sounds like that would be really poor. Really poor, conditions. right? <laughs> However, you could literally, uh, we, we grow sea island red peas, for instance. Sea island red peas are grown in that soil because it doesn't have enough fertility. The most amazing it pea around. It prefers poor, poor soil. soil. Right? Rice. Rice needs water. It needs a nice amount of drainage. Perfect soil where we are. You know, so a lot of what we're growing is conducive to what is actually in Georgia, zone 9A, because of where we are in Georgia. Most of, most of Georgia's 8A, 8B, so far as a planting zone. We're 9A, so that means we're as subtropical as any point going into Florida. So, like right now, you know, we've had some 82 degree days in February. So, um, so back, but back to your original question, like what grows well? Weeds. Weeds. Lots weeds of weeds. Well. And, okay. and then being okay with the weeds, right? But I think one of the things is, is like, our, what we've been able to do is actually bring soil fertility back to the soil by using the old ways. And the old ways are using things like fish. So we actually compost fish scraps. Um, and then we also compost, uh, wow, um, fish scraps. We do wood chips and coffee grounds. And that's our compost um, because one, it holds nutrients very, very well, and it provides the right amount of nutrients to grow most of the things we grow, like corn and okra and zucchini and zipper peas and all those kinds of things, right? And strawberries and mm -hmm. ginger and turmeric right. and garlic and onions. So we've been able to use a lot of the old ways so far as the composting methods go 
to actually make those things happen. Mm -hmm. And some of the challenging things to grow, I mean, think rhubarb. So I spent, you know, seven years living in New York and going yeah. upstate New York and collecting all the rhubarb I could for a strawberry rhubarb jam. Well, it's too hot. It's too hot and it's too wet to grow rhubarb um, down in coastal Georgia. Right. Um, and, you know, you just, you're just okay with it. You find other things to do. And yeah. I think that that's, you know, one of the amazing things for us is being able to grow for the most part year round. Um, August, you may want to, you know, hide in the movie theater all day. Um, but for yeah. the rest of the year, you know, it can get warm, but you can still grow things like the Sea Island red peas. Your peppers are going to keep going through August on into the fall. Mm -hmm. And so there's some really amazing things that we've been able to do, like fermented bananas. fermented peppers oh, on our farm. I right. didn't think that. Yeah, we grow bananas. We have a couple of banana trees that we just replanted on the farm mm -hmm. again. Um, apples don't grow well. No, But not a well crab at all. apple will, which is good for, like, juicing and, like, making fermented mm -hmm. um, drinks and things like that. So, How do you yeah. How do you acquire the compost that you use on the farm? Do you have, is, do you have relationships where people drop it off? Do you buy it? We, we make our own compost. Okay. So we actually have one of the largest organic composting pads in Georgia. Um, and so we will work with City Market, which is our local, um, you know, fish market. And so we'll get their scraps um, that they freeze for us. We take them, take them out to the farm, let them kind of unfreeze for a little bit mm -hmm. and then we toss it on our pile and we we do a lot of hand mixing um because we are without a tractor um <laughs> so uh yeah. it can get pretty disgusting and the vultures like to lie in wait um to get some of our lovely waste but we're um, able to we work with local coffee houses to pull mm -hmm. their coffee grounds and then you know whatever we're doing so if we're doing um you know, a big prep for a catering opportunity, you know, whatever we're not feeding to the chickens, um, we'll go in the compost pile. Yeah. So as much as possible, we try to make sure that our things are come full circle so that nothing, nothing is going to the trash unless it's actual trash. Yeah. Four letter F word free is amazing. <laughs> I was just clarifying. Uh, Matthew, you're a certified ecological horticulturalist. Which, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so long. Yeah, yeah. For 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 people listening, can you unpack that a little bit? Unpack it. Yeah. You know, I what I that entails. You know, if I knew then what I knew now, I probably wouldn't have really went back to the school. I actually would have just sat at the foot of my grandmother and had a conversation with her about you know doing things because once I finished school and came home and started doing it, she was like, "Oh, baby, we've been doing that for years." You know. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> there goes me paying all that money to go to school, but. To unpack she had the it, secrets the whole time. I know, had the secrets the whole time. Really, it's about sustainability. Mm -hmm. It's about knowing how and thinking always how to help the earth reclaim what we've taken so much of. Yeah. What was that? Talk about the program. That oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Javon's reminding me um, that I not to leave out anything. Well, I, I went to UC Santa Cruz to the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems. Amazing program. Um, teaches literally the name that it is, the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems. So how do we, how do we save seed, seed? How do we keep producing what we need to produce? How do we change our crops? What crops work well with other crops? How can we grow flowers inside of our area, not just for you know, beauty, but also to help make money for cut flowers, but also keep the pollinators around? So it's a lot of that um, is what that really is about. Yeah. 
and I wanted to ask you, Javon, uh, you're on the board of uh, Seed Savers Exchange. Yes, I am. I would love to hear about what that is, and you're also a co-chair for Slow Food Coastal Georgia. I'm not sure how you all have time to work every day on a farm and take on all these other projects, but what are some of the other things that you work on that are uh, directly maybe related to the day-to-day at the farm? Absolutely. So for me, I'm on the board of directors. I'm actually the co-chair for the board for Seed Savers Exchange. And Seed Savers Exchange is actually one of the oldest um, nonprofit um, seed organizations that actually save seeds. They have a 400-acre um, heritage farm um, where we do a lot of the grow-outs for our seeds. So they're all open-pollinated heirloom varietals of seeds. And so it's all about preserving the seed and telling the story um, and connecting that to other seed savers. So um, we're actually one of the only seed saving nonprofits that actually has a catalog. So you can actually order seeds, you know, in the wintertime when you're dreaming of the spring, um, you can order seeds for your farm. Um, So for me, that's something that's super important is, you know, having those conversations around what it means um, to, to save seed, what it means to use open pollinated and heirloom varietals so that we can continue to save these, these heritage crops. Um, And so for me, I think that that's something that's key to the farm work that I do. Um, I actually recently stepped down from my role at Slow Food Coastal Georgia. I'd been there for for five years, and it was time for me to allow some new leadership. Um, and I've also taken on being the president of um, La Dame's Escoffier, Savannah, and Coastal Georgia chapters. So, again, connecting that seat to table um, and doing the kind of work that's all about promoting um, women in the food and beverage industry, as well as those farmers, um, where we're sourcing our food from. And so for me, it's all about how can we promote the farmer. Um, And part of that is making sure that there are chefs and restaurants that are supporting the farmers, buying from them, and continuing to support the work that they're doing to to steward the land. And, you know, to to even, you know, people always say to us, like, where do you guys have the time to do (laughs) all of this stuff? And one of the things that we've realized um, this past year is that we have only gotten involved in organizations that had the same ethos that we that we that we were carrying so when you do that it's like when you get that job that no longer feels like a job because it's your passion so i think that that's how we're able to stay busy um stay relevant and Mm -hmm. stay on top of things is because we are consistently doing things that have to do with our ethos and not just like Ooh, let me grab that star that's right there. Ooh, let me grab that that's right there. You know what I'm saying? Like, we aren't doing it for any other reason than to, like, let's chill out. Let's have a good time. Let's enjoy ourselves. I mean, we're in Charleston. We're chilling. Yeah, I was just about to ask. (laughs) So you're down here. You're hanging in Charleston. You've had a couple days probably to spend going around the city. What have you done? What have you ate? Have you had a chance to enjoy today walking around the festival at all? Oh, God. So You shouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> so it's, for me, I mean, I love coming to Charleston. Like, the energy that's here is amazing. People are so excited for good food. Um, and it's also, you know, for us down in Brunswick, we are, we're coastal Georgia. So um, we're, like, just two and a half, three hours away from here. So we get to stay on the coast. So yeah. we get to connect to the coastal fish that are here, the oysters that are here, and have those stories and those foodways that are that are very, you know, pretty similar to what we're doing um, further down. Um, but, you know, just being able to go to restaurants. You know, yesterday we went to, what, Pugin's Porch, which the, was awesome. Right. Edmonds 
Brian's Oast for dinner, oh my God, which was best amazing. Best in town. Awesome. Yeah, Bob Cook was on with us yesterday. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness. Wow, yeah. We had yeah, a yeah, yeah. fabulous yeah. meal. And then fire. <laughs> so street, and we also love street food. We love so, street food. So, so the rest us, on fire. Oh we're, man, we're, we've oh. traveled all over the world. I mean, yeah. we originally met um, in Italy. In Italy, yeah. um, so that's how we met one another. I used to work for Slow Food USA, so a lot of what I did was traveling the country and traveling the world, advocating on behalf of good, clean, and fair food. And so for us, you know, food has been at the center of our relationship and continues to be. Oh man, we have celebrity a, for real in the house right here. Look, got his sunglasses, well, got his sunglasses on, uh, white jacket. I'm a scared late to even addition. like. Let me made me sit up. Chef Kevin Mitchell has just joined us. How are you, Chef? Good, how are you? Chef Scholar. Thank you for I'm being good. How here. Are you? Doing good. Uh, we were just talking a little bit about Charleston and enjoying this wonderful city and the weekend and uh, and everything, the camaraderie that 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 is going on down here. Uh, how's the weekend been for you so far? Honestly, Are you honestly, tired? this is my first event for the weekend. I've been out of town. Okay. Been in the Caribbean, um, doing a consulting job at a resort. Um, so I flew in late last night at midnight and up this morning at seven and getting ready for my event this evening. What's that event that you're uh, be Southern doing? Renaissance closing event. Amazing. Yeah. What are you gonna be making? Um, I'm calling it the uh, diaspora salad. So basically, ingredients from the African diaspora. So it'll contain sweet potatoes, bene seed vinaigrette. There's going to be some kale in there, a little fried shallots, um, a little bit of orange juice, some maple syrup, mm. and um, nice. so yeah, it's going to be awesome. it's going to be nice. Good. Tasty. You're a chef. You're an educator. You're a teacher. Tell the, the folks listening, uh, what what do you do? What's your day to day? Well, I I'm a chef instructor here at the Culinary Institute of Charleston. Been here for for ten years. And uh, what what classes do you teach at the at the Culinary um, Institute? Overall, whatever needs to be taught. But for the most part, um, I teach a lot of the uh, first year classes. So those are classes that when students first enter into culinary school, those are the classes that they take. So basic knife skills, basic breakfast cookery, sauce making, dressing making, so on and so forth. Um, but I also teach some advanced classes, um, creating a new class right now um, based, on the, uh, based on Southern cuisine, through, but based on the regions of the South. So not just gonna teach them about fried chicken and macaroni and cheese and things that we consider Southern. So we'll hit the Tidewater South in the Washington DC, Chesapeake area. We'll hit the Appalachias with Tennessee and Kentucky. Um, of course, we're gonna do Charleston, um, low country. And one day specifically, we're gonna focus in on, on Gullah cuisine. And then we'll move into the Gulf South and um, Louisiana, Mississippi and the Delta, so on and so forth. Uh, question for you but also for, for everyone here about young minds as they maybe as they leave culinary school and they get their first gig more and more people are, are staying at restaurants for shorter periods of time there's a lot of uh, maybe instant satisfaction that people want to maybe rise quickly up in the kitchen how do you address that with your students do you give them any advice one way or another about uh, when they leave culinary school and and get into a professional job 
I give them a lot of really different advice, but the most important thing is when they leave culinary school, for them to go out and get some experience, work with a great chef. Um, I'm not for them moving about every six months they get a new job. Stay with a chef for a year, two years, um, or but first thing is research that chef. And if that chef is, um, their food and their philosophy on food is in line with what you want to do, then that's the chef you should go work for. So reach out to these chefs, find out what they're doing, but definitely don't, you know, six months in, you don't have enough time to really learn anything from a chef working for six months. So stay with them, but move on, see other, what other chefs are doing. Um, you know, a good majority of our students stay in the Charleston area, which is great. But I also encourage them to branch out. I mean, Atlanta's five hours away. Savannah's right up the road. So, and there's some really great things going on in both those cities. Brunswick, Georgia's not far. No, not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, and I also want to uh, interject around that as well, seeing as how I'm, I'm probably the I'm a millennial here, um, although I'm 37, so I'm an old millennial. Um, which feels you so said weird. that we didn't. I know, I totally did. <laughs> um, so for me, I came by way of food. Um, I didn't go to a culinary school. So I mean, I, for me, I'm self-taught. I taught myself how to ferment, um, how to do preservation. And so for me, um, I say like, figure out what your passion is and go there. You know, figure. You know, learn your learn your chops. You know, get some of that experience in. But then also like dream because. Not everybody who goes to culinary school is going to become a chef or wants to stay a chef. Um, you can become a private chef. You can do your pop-ups. You can become a research chef. Um, you can start doing your own value-added products, which is what I do. And so for me, I think there's so many different ways that you can do it, um, as well as be becoming an advocate, um, getting in the school system and changing the way that youth eat. Um, so I think there's so many opportunities, and I don't think it needs to look like one size um, fits all, you know. And for me, as a as a new um, a new La Dame, um, it's so amazing for me to be able to see all the different paths that folk folks have taken in the food and beverage industry. And it and it looks like beer brewing. It looks like making wine. It looks like making jam. And so um, I think that there's so many opportunities for youth out there to really become these full, full-bodied um, people who are doing passionate work that is furthering the food industry. And, you know, uh, I'm not even going to get on the millennial thing. I don't want to get on that at all because I'll, <laughs> I'll, this will be another show, you know, but one of the things I will say is, <clears throat> so when, when Kevin and I finished culinary school, the internet and the accessibility were just starting to really take off. Now, I, I run into people that believe that because they can open their phone and Google sourdough bread, they know how to make a starter, they know how to make sourdough, and it's going to be the most amazing thing. So they make it, and it comes out great. They make it again, and it comes out great. And they make it a third, fourth, fifth, ten times. All ten times it comes out great. All of a sudden, they own a bakery. <laughs> and I'm like, Kat, you have no interpersonal skills. The only thing you've messed with is that sourdough. Right. And you got it off the Internet, and you know nothing else, and you're a one-trick pony. And so my thing is, is not only doing the time, but also understanding the craft, that it's work. 
And one of my biggest pet peeves is folks really don't want to work. They want the shortcut to stardom, the shortcut to fame. You know, they look at folks like like all of us that are sitting here, and they're like, well, you there, why are you trying to keep me from being there? I didn't. It took me 20 years to get here. I didn't wake up, you know. I woke up like it doesn't work for doesn't work in this industry like that. Right. And the other thing is, is retention of the information. Like I have had folks that work for me graduate from culinary school. I know they should have a basic setup on some of this stuff and aren't retaining the information. They're like, yeah, I learned that, but I don't remember. Something you just did four months ago, you don't remember? It's a small dice. So I think it's that, that instant gratification. That's not, it's never going to happen in this industry. Yeah. And the other thing is it's not uh, culinary food, food, any shape of food, whether it's the farming part, the cooking part, even all the in-between is lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. Every time Absolutely. you think you've gotten this one thing down, I walk to this guy and he's talking about a diaspora salad. Oh, I just learned something new. He just talked about a bene vinaigrette. Wait, uh, you know, so thinking that you know all of it, it's not real. Not until you put in some real work. You said it's something interesting about being able to have interpersonal skills. And I think that that's something that maybe is overlooked when people are trying to get Absolutely. Training. Talk more about that and why, and, if, and Kevin, if that's a part of something that, part of the advice that you give to young chefs as well. Yeah, uh, you know, e- everybody is not aren't aren't shaped to be people persons like just to be able to easily get along with other people right but in our industry you are consistently around other people there is you you you, one you can't work in a silo okay two the people you're serving aren't in a silo so you have to be able to talk to them like when someone says you know what i didn't like this double oink this porthouse pork chop with bacon you don't first flip out and go, well, you know, if you don't like it, you can get out. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not what you do. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, what is it that you didn't like? And being able to decipher and understand what it is they really didn't like, well, it was a little too fatty. Got it. Too much fat on there for you. But not just go off the handles. I meet young cats that just go off the handle. Like, they're offended because someone said they didn't like something. Like, yeah, that's part of learning how to cook. Well, and I think there's some interpersonal work that's also changing as well. You know, when I was working in kitchens in high school and um, college and working with professional chefs, you know, who went to culinary school and they're whites, like, you know, my parents really didn't want me working in kitchens because it was seen as abusive, sexist, and that you, I was there was going to be nothing but yelling at me, which, you know, there most certainly was. Some yelling, and but I definitely think that over the last, you know, 20 years that it's changed to where now chefs can't just be abusive because they're talented, but that you actually do have to, like, treat your people with respect um, and and give them opportunities to, to work and to improve without just cussing them out and kicking them out of the kitchen. And, and with the rise of Me Too, needed, we're seeing that as well. Well, I think for me... As, as an educator teaching the techniques and the culinary skills, but it's also my job to teach the soft skills through teaching them the techniques and the culinary and um, making sure as far as showing up to, to class on time, coming to class in full uniform, having your recipes ready, where are your books, where are your knives. So 
my students, for me, they they get those soft skills, um, and I I, mean, I really hammer on them because you know they can be the best chef on the planet and cook the most wonderful food on the planet, but if they don't know how to communicate with their staff, they're not going to have a staff, right? And the chef is only as good as his crew. Um, so, you know, it's it's all about teaching them those those other things that come along with. It's one thing to teach someone how to dice an onion and how to properly sear a piece of foie gras. But if they don't have the, the wherewithal to, to show up on time or even show up early, like, Classes for me start at 7.30 in the morning. You know, students, they start showing up at 7 o'clock, and that's great. And they go right to setting up their stations and doing what they're supposed to do. Those students that walk in at 7.30, they're, I'm considering them late. And I'm like, well, chef, it's 7.30. Class, has, class starts at 7.30. No. Ready to go. Um, we're, we're ready to go. Yeah. Yes, it's 7.30. But um, so, you know, but... Like it's like everyone's saying, it's it's this generation, and it's we want it now, and it's it's TV, it's the Hell's Kitchens and the Top Chefs. And trust me, I love those shows. I watch them just as much as the next. But I have to teach my students that hey, that's all for entertainment. Some of the stuff that they do, yes, it's cooking, but most of it is entertainment, and that's why people watch it because it's entertaining. But don't leave my kitchen or leave the school thinking that okay you know next year i'm going to be the next top chef or i'm going to be the next iron chef or whatever because it's not going to happen um you know and it's funny what the first day of class for all new classes i have 16 students i say okay how many of you when you leave here are going to be the next iron chef and like eight of the 16 raise their hand and i just laugh at them and and i and i and it's a jest but i say hey there may be one in this one in this classroom that may make it, but you know you have to have the the skills to entertain. You can and have a drive. TV show. Who wants to work real hard for twenty years? Yeah. How many hands go up when? You yeah, run? you can have this really great show, but if you're not entertaining, no one's going to watch your cooking show. It doesn't really matter. I want to ask about something that you touched on a couple minutes ago, which is um, going beyond the maybe traditional menu sets expectations of what Southern cuisine are. Uh, many people all over the United States, but especially people that have um, not traveled to the South or never grew up here, they might have a very limited view of what Southern cuisine is, and it's some of the, the staples that you mentioned. And everybody loves collards and mac and cheese. I'm curious about what all of you um, at the farm or at school, at restaurants, um, some things that you're excited about sharing with people that might have a very limited uh, knowledge of of things outside the the norm. Well, I can um, jump into that. Um, for me, I think you know, granted, I grew up in the Midwest, um, but my family is southern. My mom was raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and so I had a very southern upbringing in the middle of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and so for me, you know, again, like. We have those greens, we have the collards, you know, we have things like salmon croquettes um, and just really like delicious things like, you know, grits and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, for me, as, as I've gotten older and I've done a lot of the work, you know, the slow food work, the seed saving work is seeing a lot of those varietals that are coming back. So yesterday I, I did the retreat event over at the schoolhouse. And so, you know, I did this 
the southern kimchi. So I used, you know, collards and radishes from our farm and, and pulled in a lot of those southern vegetables in addition to, you know, some of those traditional um, Asian or Chinese vegetables um, for, you know, for my ferment, which I fermented for three weeks. Um, but I topped it um, on top of a, um, a midland cake, so a ginger scallion midland cake. So your midlands are going to be your broken pieces of rice, and so these these were actually from Anson Mills. Um, and so you know, so I you know we we cooked this really amazing broth with all kinds of of vegetables, green onions, ginger, and then we rolled it out and made these cakes and just topped it um, with the kimchi. And so it's being able to like take a lot of those flavors that you wouldn't necessarily you know, immediately associate with the South. And as farmers, we're using everything that we can. So pulling in those collards into new um, settings for folks. And I think that that's something that's really exciting about what's happening with Southern foodways right now. For me, um, I'm, you know, growing up in Brunswick, Georgia, it's the coast of Georgia. And from a historical standpoint, it was one of the original entry points for folks into what is now the United States. Brunswick itself was one of those original ports. It was also one of the ports that um, had Spanish influence also. So that's a part of our history that a lot of people don't realize. Like the only reason we have the Osabawa hog is because the Spaniards left it on Osabawa Island, right? And that's like, that hasn't even been ever, like it was, it's been kind of glazed over. Um, but a lot of the varietals and things that we have are from travelers, people from other places that brought things and left them, right? The piney longhorn. I mean, that, for God's sake, that didn't come here. You know, it wasn't here. And so a lot of our food, what we call it, is port city food because it's indigenous of all the people that have ever came through our port. Like, you know, the way we eat biscuits and, you know, eat it with blackstrap molasses. Like, not everybody has blackstrap molasses. You know, you go up north, there's no sugar cane grown up there, you know? So we're just using those ingredients, like oysters for us, huge. Oysters and shrimp, uh, soft shell crab, you know, um, squid, I mean, shark. Like, those are, like, normal things that we eat. And oftentimes I have people like, where would you learn how to cook that? I was like, uh, right here. You know, I'm from Georgia. You know, and they're like, well, Georgia has a coast? And I'm like, yeah, that has a coast. A hundred miles of it that contains a third of the marsh for the eastern seaboard, right? So we have lots of seafood, and I grew up doing all those kinds of things. And I think that that's one of those things that people have, have this, like, bacon, grits, and cotton, you know? And then and people think about tobacco. peaches and tobacco, and then that's, like, about it. But the amount of food, I mean, this area, right, that we're along in right here was the original was the rice basket. It was the bread basket. It's where everything was grown for the rest of the United States for a very long period Before of time. Before there was king cotton. Before there, there was, was king cotton, there was rice, you know? So if people were to do their real history, they would change their menus half the time talking about Southern food. For me, I'm really excited about the fact that people are looking at Southern food on a more, going back to the region and understanding you know, the food is different in, in every region, but it's still considered Southern food. You know, I'm also someone that grew up in the North. Uh, my grandmother grew up in North Carolina. Um, but in moving, moving to Charleston allowed me to really embrace specifically Low Country, Gullah, 
but moving on and, and, and going to get my master's in Southern Foodways, um, understanding that once again it's all it's all regional. So going back to the Appalachia, where it's all about fermented corn, um, and they use it, they eat it just, just a big bowl of fermented corn, or they can put it in the salad, you know. And also the fact that we as Southerners we are bracing those other influences that make southern food what it is you know so you have you know people like southern foodways alliance embracing the 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 latino south i mean that's that's what it is that's real you know or you know when you have chefs that uh coming over from other countries you have you know chef someone like asha gomez who's embracing her southern roots through her being from southern India and then now moving and living in the American South. And you have someone like Vishwesh um, Bhatt in, in, in Oxford who, you know, was as a student at the University of Mississippi, I spent many a night at, a, at Snack Bar, and he's embracing his southern roots through his travels or his living in northern India. So... It's really exciting and also that people are starting to, like Javon said, really look at the ingredients, you know, the, the peas and all those things that, things that, of course, Anson Mills is bringing back or, you know, Geechee Boy, they're bringing back Sea Island Red Peas and all the cow peas and all these other peas that um, were, were grown many, many years ago and people seem to have forgot. Now... These things are coming back, you know, you know, the sapolo and the, the sugar cane and all these things. And that's what really makes southern food exciting, the ingredients. And then, of course, what the chefs are doing with those ingredients from their specific regions or even here, right here in Charleston. It is really exciting to see what people are really digging in deep about ancient grains and bringing things back that maybe haven't grown or been cultivated and and reaching back and basically being a food historian right um, and, and and thinking what are what are things that we can recultivate and share with with other people I want to ask another question about the farm just because I think it's it's so exciting what's going on on the farm uh, we spoke a little about composting but you mentioned that you don't have a tractor right and yeah. I just have to jump back and ask how do you farm and, and how difficult is it um, without using uh, machinery? Well, I, I wish we had a tractor <laughs> with a front-end loader. So if anyone's listening to this and are number thinking one number on one list. on our wish list. Um, but, I mean, we, we do everything by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try besides to find... Besides the, the pull-behind uh, yeah, tiller. Besides the pull-behind tiller. Yeah. Outside of that, everything, I mean, we weed by hand, um, we have uh, the, uh, not the plow with the mule in front of it, but we have the push plow. Um, we still have the old one old that, my, that my great-grandfather used to do. So we do a lot of stuff by hand. And every now and then we reach out um, when we have enough money to someone that has a tractor and say, hey, you know, you know we're organically certified. Can you make sure you wash everything down? You can come out and do this for us real quick. So we do have a few of those things that happen. But, I mean, it's... it's uh, it's also like cooking. It's a labor of love. Like, you have to love the land. No doubt it sounds laborious. Yes. No doubt about that. But it's also working smarter, not harder. Yeah. So finding ways to yeah, do that. Yeah, I do. I do. love it because you're so, you're so close to it. Your yeah. hands are in it. Definitely. And it's bringing you closer to, 
to the dirt, to the ingredients. Yeah. Yes, of course, it's nice to have I, we a have to, tractor. We have to wrap up, but I think that was a beautiful way to close. We do it because we love it, right? Do it because yes. we love it. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for taking time away from your busy lives Thank and, for having and us. joining us down at uh, Charleston Wine and Food. Uh, good luck with your event tonight. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to La Crusade and the Julia Child Foundation. We'll be right back with more content from Heritage Radio Network from Charleston. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.